watch. It is right in front of Jesus and them. And Jesus takes action that he hopes will prevent them from dropping the proverbial baton. His desire is to enhance the probability of success for the mission and to help ensure its worldwide impact. He wants to ensure that the gospel will go forth without incident, without a lack of focus, without the baton falling to the ground, that he is concerned that what is about to happen may discourage you so much that you forget why you're here. That you forget that we're not just at Bethel Hope to hang out. That there is a mission that Jesus has come. We're not just here to have potluck. We're not just here to eat and meet and greet each other. We're here because Jesus has called us all to a mission. And he says in his prayer for us, don't drop the baton. Jesus is preparing them. And then so as I examine this passage, I see some things that are essential to the success and the sustainability of the mission. I see it in this passage right here. First thing I see is this. First thing I see is the importance of prayer. The importance of prayer. It's in the text. It's right there in the first part of the first verse, just chapter, uh, verse 1a. The very first part of verse 1, here's what it says. It says, uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, what are these words? The words of chapter 16, words of chapter 15, all the words that he spoke before this, when he was done speaking, it says he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, you can stop right there because you know what that means? It means that he went to the father in prayer Uh, before he took another step, before anything else happened, before we get to the rest of John 17, we realize that Jesus at this moment goes to the Father in prayer. Jesus then makes a conscious decision that after all he had said and done to prepare, to prepare them, it was now prayer time. It was time to pray. Prayer, my brothers and my sisters, is, a vital, is vital to the Christian's life. Yeah, it's through prayer that we are able to commune with God. It's through prayer that we have, we have a direct line of communication to a sovereign and a loving God who Isaiah describes as having ears that are not deaf and arms that are not short. It's the way that we connect with him through prayer. Prayer is critical to the success, the sustainability of the Christian. And one of the biggest faults that we have as believers, one of the biggest blind spots, one of the the things that we miss most and the things that we fail at is we are often given to prayerlessness. We forget to pray oftentimes and we forget to go to the Lord and commune and communicate with him. And, And so prayerlessness is often our downfall and our point of struggle. Martin Luther said this. Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. 
And then Cora Ten Boom asked this interesting question. She says this. She says, is prayer your steering wheel or is prayer, prayer your spare tire? How important is prayer in your life? Prayer is the most powerful tool that we have at our disposal. It's, it's the most powerful tool in our toolbox. It's, it's what God wants us to use when we face situations and trials and temptations. And, and, and when we face overwhelming odds, he says, pray. Not only that, but Paul reminds us not only that we pray asking for things, but he says that we ought to pray with thanksgiving. Right. So prayer is more than just asking God for stuff. But I I, I submit to you that when we pray, miracles happen. When we pray, mountains are moved. When we pray, seas are parted. You don't believe me? It's in scriptures. Remember, Moses prayed and the Red Sea parted. Remember, Joshua prayed and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Remember that Gideon prayed and he defeated 135,000 with just 300. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel. He prayed and God rained down fire one minute and rain the next minute. Prayer is powerful. And God wants us to remember to pray. Paul and Silas prayed at midnight in a prison cell. And the Lord sent deliverance to them by way of an earthquake. Prayer is vital. Then we have this prayer. This is not just any prayer in John 17. This is what's known as the high priestly prayer offered by Jesus Christ himself right before he would be betrayed and arrested in the garden. He offers this prayer. Here's another quote by Martin Luther. Martin Luther also says, There is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or in earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. This is not just any prayer. This is the high priestly prayer. Question is this, how does the Son of God pray at such a pivotal point in history, in the history of the world? How how does Jesus pray at this juncture? The hour has come that has been foretold about Jesus by the prophets. Prophets like Isaiah have prophesied of this very moment for hundreds and hundreds of years that this day would at some point come. And prophets like Isaiah have talked about and looked forward to with great expectation the arrival of this hour, and now this hour has come. You remember Isaiah uh, said it when he looked forward this way. He said, He is despised in in that 53rd chapter of Isaiah. He says, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of many sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
he was opposed and he was afflicted. Yet Isaiah says he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. The hour has come. How does Jesus pray at this crucial hour to secure the future restoration and effectiveness uh, of this soon-to-be suspect cast of characters? You know that they will soon lose their faith. And to solidify the future success of this world-altering movement that will begin in just a few hours. First thing I see is the importance of prayer. We already talked about that. Next, I'd like to look at the structure of Jesus' prayer. How does he pray at this time? How does he pray? What does he pray for? What does his prayer sound and look like? Well, first thing I want to show you from this text is that in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. He prays for himself. In verse 1, he seeks the Father's help. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says this, after the part we just read, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He, in the first part of the prayer that he offers for himself, he seeks the Father's guidance, assistance, and help in what he's preparing to do. He realizes that this hour has now come. The hour that Jesus had said time and time again had not yet come. Remember, in all of his life, they kept trying to rush him and push him toward this hour, but he continued to say all throughout the Gospels that my hour, my time has not yet come. Well, now in John 17, at the end of the upper room discourse with Gethsemane on the immediate horizon, he says, now my hour has come. And he has made it to his purpose. By the way, his sole purpose for coming to earth was to die for sin. And he has now arrived at that time where he'll be called to sacrifice. He is about to be betrayed, arrested, tried, wrongfully convicted, and then crucified. And he realizes that that time is now. He prays to the Father that the Father would help him in this final stretch that he would not be denied his date with destiny on Calvary. He asked the Father to glorify him and walk with him and be with him and prevent anything that would stand in the way of him fulfilling his mission that he came to earth for. Then in verses 2 through 4, verses 2 through 4, he recounts his mission and announces his success. Look at verses 2 through 4. Verses 2 through 4 say this. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they, that know, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He looks back over and also looks forward to what's about to happen, and he declares to the Father in his prayer, I have been successful. I have done 
what I've come to do. And I thank God. I thank you, Father, for allowing me. Jesus makes it clear that he has been sent to earth to represent God here on earth and to proclaim in person, in word, and in deed the message of eternal life to all of humanity. That's the reason why he came. He, he represents God the Father here on earth. It had been tried many times before, but no one could do what Jesus did. Uh, it's been said that God sent man after man after man in the Old Testament to make known the severity of the human condition to no avail. Nobody could do it. All, you, you can go down the list. You can look at Moses, Joshua, Elijah. You can look at Elisha. You can look at all of the Old Testament prophets. They came preaching a word, but it did not resonate that it was to no avail. Then, at the very beginning of the New Testament age, after 400 years of silence in the intertestamental period, he decides not to send a man, he decides to show up as a man to solve the problem that existed in humanity. And Jesus says to the Father in this prayer, I have done what I came to do. Verse 5, then he looks towards home. As he closes out section of his prayer where he prays for himself, he has an eye toward home. Look at what verse 5 says. Verse 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. David says in Psalm 30 and 5, he says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Jesus, at the end of his own prayer section, looks toward home and that third day morning when he will be glorified and he will return to the right to be seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. It's part of Jesus' prayer calls to my memory what Paul writes to the church at Philippi when he says this. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the sound of his name, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is this picture that's in mind as Jesus closes the section of his prayer where he prays for himself, he looks toward home because he knows home is coming soon. So first thing Jesus does is he prays for himself, but then secondly, as we transition to the second part of this prayer, he then prays for his disciples. In verses 6, six through 19, Jesus begins to lift up a prayer on behalf of his disciples. In this part of his prayer, Christ speaks very highly of the disciples. It's strange if you know the rest of the story. It's strange to hear this God-man 
who has foreknowledge, who has uh, future knowledge of what they will do. And he spent three and a half years with them, so he knows how fickle they are. (laughs) He knows what they will do in a few hours. But he speaks of them in verses 6 through 19 as if they were the greatest people, greatest disciples to ever walk the face of the earth. I'll give face of the earth. I'll give you just a little snippet of it. Look at verse 8. This is what Jesus prays to the Father on behalf of these fickle followers. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. All throughout this section of the prayer, he lifts them up rather than tearing them down. There's a word in there for us. The word is that uh, Jesus wants only the best for us. And Jesus decides, even with foreknowledge of how they will abandon him in just a few hours. Mad is not going to be but a few hours in the future. And a lot of them jokers are going to tuck tail and run. Only one is going to stand by John, the the writer of this gospel. Jesus says that he is the disciple that I love, and the rest of them, including mainly Peter, going to run, and some will deny him. And Jesus, with full knowledge of this, goes to the Father with nothing but positivity. Nothing but positivity. Isn't that interesting that Jesus Christ, would speak positivity over them. That's a word for us. The word is be careful how you treat people and how you pray about. Let me tell you something. Your words will, especially in children, will manifest themselves in reality if you're not careful. Here is what we ought to do. Even knowing that there are negative days ahead, we still should pray positive thoughts over each other. Even though, even knowing that we're human with frailties and faults and misgivings and all of that, we're sinful, right? But when I pray for you, I should go to the Father for you with nothing but positivity. Jesus' heart for them was positive, even realizing that for them, there was going to be much negative stuff coming up. But he prays for them, and he he goes to the Father on their behalf. Uh, And here it is. I'm so glad that Jesus' thoughts, hopes, and dreams for us are all positive, even knowing that there will be lots of negativity along the way. He is right now seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession, interceding for you, and for me. He knows what we did last night. He knows what we did last week. He knows what we're thinking right now. Right now, you're thinking, I wish this dude would hear up and sit down because I got that food in there. I got things to do today. The, the, all, you know. He knows. <laughs> so you got to be careful. But even with all of that, right? Even with all of that, even with his intimate knowledge of who we are and what we think and what we've done, he knows things about you that nobody in the world knows but you and him. He knows things about me that none of you know. And even with knowing that, 
His heart is positive for me. He right now is my advocate in glory. So that when I get there, he will be the first one standing at the pearly gate saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Even though you had some missteps and some negative days, you've been faithful over a few things. Come on in and I'll make you ruler over many, even though you didn't always pray like you should have. Even though you, you didn't always serve like you should have. Even though uh, you, you did some things that you shouldn't have done. And don't look at me, y'all holy, because you've done some things. That you shouldn't have done. Somebody say amen. All of us are guilty. But you know what? Our God is an awesome God. And right now, just like he did for Stephen when they stoned him, he's standing up for us right now at the right hand of God the Father. And so that when we look up into glory, we see the the Son standing beside the Father as our lawyer and our advocate. I plead their case. They're my children. So he prays for the disciples knowing that there are going to be some interesting days ahead. So he prays for himself first. Then he prays for the disciples. But then lastly, I love this part. In verses 20 through 23, he prays for those who would believe. In 20 through 23. Warren read it for you earlier. Let me read it for you again. 20 through 23, Jesus prays this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I give, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. On the eve of the crucifixion, with the burden of the sins of the world on his shoulders, Jesus the Christ himself pauses to pray for you and for me. Isn't that amazing? That he had you on his mind right before they would crucify him. He prays in this passage for all those like us who have or will someday come to know him through the word and the work of his disciples. What exactly did he pray for us is the question. What what does he pray? We're just ready for you, but let's talk about it. Remarkably, he prayed just one thing and one thing only. Three times in the three verses that we've just read, he prayed that we would be one. That's the emphasis. That is the focus of his prayer for us all that would believe as a result of the word and the work of the disciples, that they would be one. This part of Jesus' high priestly prayer serves, in fact, as the biblical foundation for what we're doing here at Bethel Hope. It serves as our, our, our guide, our, our, our 
structure, our foundation, it is the reference that we use to say that we're not just doing this just to do it. Uniting as one is not just a good idea, right? It's not just a great racial reconciliation strategy, right? It, it may be both of those things, but it's a lot more than that. It's included in the part of Jesus' last prayer before he laid his life down. And if you know anything about last words, you know that last words that anybody gives are very significant. It is the last, the most important message that that person wants to leave behind. And Jesus, at the end of his high priestly prayer, says, my prayer for those that will come in the future is that they would be one. His intention was for us believers to become mature enough in our faith that we would completely unite together and be one with each other and one with the Father. It, 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 it takes maturity, Christian maturity to get there, right? It's not easy to come together and, and be uncomfortable. It takes maturity. It takes denying one's own self and desires. In order, it takes the willingness to humble oneself and to look beyond oneself and to look at the bigger picture and to say, listen, I don't mind. I don't mind being uncomfortable for an hour or two uh, every now and then in order that we might be one. It says, I don't mind listening to music and I don't know any of the words or any of the melodies and I, that's not what's comfortable to me uh, in order that the bigger picture might be in view. It says, I don't mind listening to a preacher that's too loud every now and then uh, and, and, not like I, and not doesn't preach like I like to be preached to because the bigger picture is in mind. I, I don't mind gathering and sitting next to my brothers and sisters who may come from a different side of the track or a different part of town than I do uh, that may look different than I do do, but it's the bigger picture that's in mind. Jesus says, here it is, my desire for all that will come after this is that they would be one. Mm. His intention was for us to be one. Uh, why though? Here's the question. Why be one? Why be one? Why is Christ so insistent on this? Here it is. It's in the text. So that the world would know God's love and believe. In verses 21 and 23. So that the world would know God's love and believe. We have been called to be one for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. Not many, but one. When believers of diverse backgrounds walk together as one in Christ, they uniquely reflect the Father's love on earth as it is in heaven. Moreover, their oneness of mind, uh, love, spirit, and purpose proclaim the gospel in a most powerful and compelling way. And so I believe it is right for us to come together as one. Jesus in this prayer gives us the most effective way to reach the world with the gospel. He's not overly concerned and interested in us writing books, although writing books is good. That's not at the top of his list. He's not overly concerned or interested in us building buildings to house homogeneous congregations. That's good, but that's not at the top of his list. He's not interested in us being seeker-sensitive or being postmodern or being emergent or even being purpose-driven. 
It's not at the top of his list. All those things may have their place. But his interest is in us being one. He says that's what's most important. In the age in which we live, it will be the unity of the church that wins the unsaved more than any trendy church growth strategy, any hot new book, or any... I need to dance around this one a little bit. Any popular new preacher. Because we're quick to rally around, you know, that young, trendy, uh, skinny jeans wearing church planner and say, you know, he's got to look. Yeah, amen, somebody. Somebody said, ouch. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus is not, it, it, that is not what will win the world. It'll last for a little bit, but at some point the glitter and the glam will wear off and you'll need some meat to go with all of that fancy stuff. That's the reason why I don't wear skinny jeans, Kevin. No, that's not the only reason why. I mean, <laughs> Jesus is interested in us doing what we're doing today. You know what? Jesus looks at us right now and says, this is what I'm talking about. He may not say it like that. That's my, that's my translation. That's what I'm talking about. That's the Ricky translation of what I think Jesus is just saying right now. He's looking down on us right now and saying, there's some of them in there that are frowning because they're uncomfortable. There's some of them in there that are smiling because they're comfortable. There's some in there that are indifferent. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to smile, laugh, wave their hands, stand up and shout, be quiet, fold their arms. They don't know. And Jesus says, that is what I'm talking about right there. That's what Revelation 7-9 looks like. All nations, tribes, and tongues gathered around the throne saying glory to the Lamb of God. Some waving their hands, some stomping their feet, some with their arms folded, some frowning saying, I don't know what they're talking about, but I'm here anyway. And Jesus says, well done. That's what I'm talking about. Jesus is interested in that. Paul says it this way. In Romans 15, 5 through 7, Paul says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now I want to close with a quote from Tony Evans. Tony Evans says this. It's a football team. Uh, he says, if a football team is united, it does not mean that everyone's playing the same position. It does not mean everybody is going to the same, or it does mean, rather, that everybody is going to the same goal line. If an orchestra is harmonious, it's not because they're all playing the same instrument. It's because they're all playing the same song. If a choir is singing in great harmony, it's not because they're singing the same parts. It's because they're adding their part to the same song. Unity is not sameness. Unity has to do with same purpose. And my prayer for us is that we would have one purpose in mind, to glorify God and to witness of his love in this world. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you 
for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. We thank you, Lord, for uh, this beautiful mosaic that is chosen together even in discomfort. Pray, Lord, you give us direction and guidance that we would represent you here on earth so that someone who does not know you will see the unity in us and say, I want to know this God that you talk about. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we're going to ask brothers to come as we prepare for communion. By the way, this text that we've just read today and preached from uh, has a connection to communion. Communion is one of the two sacraments of the church, the other being baptism. It's one of the ordinances that Jesus uh, commands us to keep, that we would uh, remember him in this ordinance, that we would uh, always Remember, it is what binds us. It's an opportunity for us to uh, share in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's an opportunity to reflect back on what he did for us. And the text we just read uh, connects with communion in a few ways. First, it is uh, communion is an act of worship, right? And we see in the text Jesus prays that we would worship and that we would be one as an act of worship. And so we have an opportunity to come together as one around the table, that we lift up our lives to Jesus and remember that he gave his life for us. Not only is it an act, it reminds us of an act of worship, it reminds us then as we partake of the bread and the cup that our work is not done. Jesus' work is completed but our work is not done. And so since our work is not done, uh, as we uh, partake of the bread and of the cup uh, and look back at this passage that we just read uh, and the fact that we are on a mission, right? We're not just gathering here. We're not just coming to eat bread and drink the cup because we're hungry and thirsty, right? It's a mission. And so it is a call for more people as we do this to come to this table. And then it asks the question, how many of those people will you be responsible for bringing to this table? And so then as we prepare to eat this bread and drink this cup, let us be reminded that we are on a mission to glorify Jesus and to tell others about him. So then I'm going to ask brothers. As, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to honor you. We thank you for this privilege uh, to partake in your body and in your blood. Pray that we would do it, Lord God, for your glory and in remembrance of you. We dedicate this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And a couple of things. Go ahead. Go ahead. A couple of things as we prepare to do this, we ask.